Welcome to Battle Proven Leadership. My guest today is Mark Polymeropoulos. Mark is a retired senior intelligence officer for CIA who spent 26 years working in field operations and leadership roles. Mark is one of the intelligence community's most decorated officers and the author of Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA. His book is a fantastic journey through the lessons he learned while working in the most dangerous theaters in the world. I'm excited to have Mark on because of his real-world experience leading people in high-risk clandestine operations, which is directly on point to the mission of battle-proven leadership. My name is John Becker, host of the Debrief Podcast and the founder of Aardvark Tactical. This is a new short-form podcast series from the Debrief. In each episode, we will discuss a single aspect of leadership in depth with subject matter experts who operate in high-stress environments inside and outside of the tactical community. The goal of this series is to give you direct access to the men and women whose leadership skills have been tested in the world's most dangerous situations and to provide you with specific, actionable information that you can use to hone your leadership skills. This is Battleproof in Leadership. Mark, thanks so much for being here today, man. I know you're a busy guy, and I appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thanks, John. Awesome to be here. So, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I talked about in the intro your background, which is which is amazing, and and we certainly appreciate your silent service to our country. I think it's very easy to forget that guys like you are, you know, spending 26 years in the shadows uh, and, and not probably getting very many thank yous. So, thank you for the time you spent serving our country. No, thanks, John. I, I appreciate it. It's always weird to hear that. Um, CI officers are different um, because, you know, obviously we're undercover, and so it's not, you're not wearing a uniform. People can't come up to you. And I always joke around as I live in, in the D.C. area um, uh, and in Northern Virginia where, like, everyone, probably, like, you know, half the half the, the customers at your local giant or Safeway <laughs> working at the agency. Um, they just look like everybody else. Yeah. So you can never tell who they are. Yeah. So that's, I, I'm always, I'm always yeah. cognizant of that when I'm walking around in DC or Vienna <laughs> or, you know, Sterling, Virginia or Crystal City. Yep. You're like, yeah, all these guys are probably spots. <laughs> so. The best part about it is you go to it, you know, when your kids have a, like a, a, you know, baseball or football or soccer game and people are wearing a U.S. Embassy Baghdad t-shirt. And then you're like, all right. <laughs> and they said, we work for the State Department. You're like, yeah, you do. Sure okay. you do. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Mark, your, your book is all about leading in what you describe as the gray, right? The world of ambiguity, which is, is obviously where you lived for a long time. Um, big picture. Kind of give me where, how, how did your work at CIA um, kind of give birth to the book Clarity in Crisis? Uh, well, that's, a, that's a great question. And a lot of it had to do with kind of, and, and so much of the book has to do with kind of my humility. But um, the the book was born, it really started in 2011 and 2012 when I spent a year in Afghanistan uh, as a base as a base chief. You know, we had a paramilitary base uh, called uh, called Shkin in eastern eastern Afghanistan, Paktika province. And I remember flying in um, middle of the night, um, you know, uh, uh, infill because we're getting rocketed all the time. Um, helicopters stops in a mountain pass because the base is taking, you know, IDF incoming fire. I land a good buddy of mine was the base chief. He sees me, my eyes are bugged out. And all I could think of was like, holy shit, how am I going to leave here? You know, these, these 15 men and women for a year. Um, and, and during that year, I learned so much about myself through trial and error. Uh, and so that's kind of when I started thinking that, you know, I got to write a book about, um, about, you know, leadership under fire, about, you know, being comfortable in the uncomfortable, um, 
you know, just there's I can use like a hundred different cliches here. Um, but it's just it's just the idea of when there's a lack of situational awareness, you know, how do you respond and can you do things that train yourself over time um, to be able to respond in those situations and through a lot of trial and error. And, and I tell you, again, I'm, I'm a pretty humble guy because I screwed up as much as I succeeded. Um, but I came up with a with a bunch of principles that I really think uh, apply not only to kind of, you know, our world of, of intelligence, special operations or law enforcement, but really to the general public. So it's a, it's been a lot of fun doing this. It's funny you say that because it, it is, you know, and, and your book talks about it, but, but humility is, is kind of a, a, if you're, if you're a good leader, you're a humble leader. And, and right. generally speaking, you're a humble leader because you screwed a lot of stuff up. Uh, and, and, you know, now 38 years into my job, I still recognize that every day I learn something new and every day I'm a better leader than I was the day before, which makes me wonder what I was like 20 years ago. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, the funny thing at the agency, Right before I left, you can go back and you can read. It's called cable traffic. So, you know, so you, you, whether it's an operation, um, something that happened in an event, you know, there was a write-up of it that you generally did. And if, if, when I would go back and read times uh, of something I, I wrote up when I was a, a junior manager, as compared to when I finally retired, but I had a whole bunch of people working for me. But holy crap, um, you know, it, the, the, it, that, that was a it was an absolutely textbook kind of evolution and really bad leadership when I first started. <laughs> To, to probably when I left was when I was at my finest. Unfortunately, that's that's kind of true. Um, one of the reasons why I wrote the book too. But, but yeah, the, your your kind of evolution, your journey as a leader is pretty extraordinary. There's no such thing as people being born as a leader. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, it's really something that's learned. Um, and any, anybody, you know, certainly can turn into a great leader as well. But yeah, so looking back, those there be there was some uh, some tough tough uh, uh, cables that I read and I was like, can someone please like delete this from the system? It never happened. I never wrote this. The other one quick thing on that, John, because you know, at the end of my career, when I'd write something up, um, I wouldn't have a, a, a word, a letter in, in, in the cable at the end. And that was the letter. It was I. But in the beginning, it was always, I did this, I did that. Well, at the end, no, it was the team, the station, the base. Um, that, that kind of sums up so much of uh, of my journey. Yeah, one of the things that that when I teach culture centric leadership, one of the things that I talk about is you you internalize failure and you you share you socialize positive experiences. So the team does well. I screwed this up, and and, and it's I think as a young leader you're very inclined to do the exact opposite. Look for awesome. somebody to totally. blame the mistakes 100%. on yep. and take credit for the stuff you did right. Oh yeah. Yeah, and you're, so no, 100%. your book your book lays out nine leadership principles, and if you don't mind, I'd like to drill down on a couple of them. Um, first, you know the the first thing we which you kind of touched on is failure. So you're you you describe failure as the PED for success. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you know when I when I give this and I give this talk to I do a lot of stuff with the athletic teams, mostly with college baseball teams. I got to make it out to California. Um, uh, it would be a lot of fun, but. You know, when I say adversity is the performance enhancing drug to success, I got to then say, okay, I'm not advocating taking PADs. <laughs> that would kind of lapse after that. So, um, no, I mean, it, you know, but it, adversity is everything. I mean, that, you know, that's, that's the idea of, of, you know, that's your super fuel. Every great team that I was on, um, this, this, this applies to me as an individual, but also, uh, a, a, you know, as, as a leader in teams that I were part of, you know, they, you know, something bad had happened. Um, and that ends up being your super fuel on how you grow. And, and you know, it sounds crazy to, think about this you don't ever wish bad things to happen um but in again in my old world uh of, of kind of intelligence and, and special operations you know these things certainly do occur and it's it's how you react to that you know from that how you grow from that and 
I always, you know, when I, when I get, when I talk to sports teams, I said, all right, what happened to Michael Jordan his sophomore year in high school? And everyone knows the answer. What was it? He was cut. You know, did he take a knee? Did he go home? No. He pulled himself up by his bootstraps and, 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 and off you go. And so that idea of, of adversity to me is absolutely critical. Um, and you know, it's, it's not fun. Uh, and you know, I certainly have a, have some, some stories I could tell if you, you know, if you're interested in that. Always interested in stories. Yeah. <laughs> so so, you know, I think the, you know, the, the a key to a couple of key moments uh, of my career. And again, so much of, of my career was based on doing some really incredible things for the U.S. government teams I was on and then some some tragedies. But um, it was in a, it was a, in eastern Afghanistan in December 30th, 2009. There were seven of our officers in, in coast um, paramilitary base who were killed by a suicide bomber. Um, and it was an operation that I, I was a part of. Um, in the management chain, and I I bear some responsibility, and I to this day I think about it all the time for for some of the decisions that were made, and and you know it's I, I will uh, you know I will never forgive myself for a lot of of what occurred, um, and so kind of kind of take that extraordinary uh, uh, event, um, and and I remember uh, maybe a year and a half, two years after that, um, I came home to my wife. Um, and I said, look, and I was, it was, I was on the Middle Eastern po- posting. We were coming back. And I said, I, I got to go back. She said, where? I said, I got to go back to Afghanistan. I'd been there earlier in 2000, early 2002. Um, and, um, and she said, why? And I said, well, you know, there's unfinished, uh, unfinished business. And, um, and so she's, she asked me, where are you going to go? And I said, it's a small little base. It's called Shigen, um, which actually it's a base, uh, you know, a couple hours away from coast. Um, and so she, of course, looked it up. And uh, I Googled it and Time Magazine said, this is the most dangerous place on earth. <laughs> so, you know, and so she's like, oh, Christ. But but anyway, so, you know, so so off I go there. And, and the reason why I tell this is so the lessons I learned from what happened and, and I took and I can't really get into detail of it. But what I took from that time in coast and some of the decisions I made. So later on, there I am in, in Afghanistan again. And, um, uh, you know, there was there was a, I, I got to be careful on how I say this. There's there's obviously, you know, we have a high value target list. Um, for us and our U.S. military, you know, colleagues um, to remove from the battlefield, and there was one individual on that who was responsible for the death of two CIA officers. Um, uh, you know, not those who died in Coast, but those who had died uh, still in Pactika Province a couple of years earlier. And you know, as opposed to what I was involved with and in some of my actions in Coast, I was much more patient and deliberate, um, and much more careful. And you know, over time, we kind of developed, uh, you know, the 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 operational picture. We recruited some sources, some agents. Um, who then put this high value target on the X and he was removed from the battlefield. And I remember, you know, that night we're sitting around the, the, the campfire, you know, it's in Afghanistan. If you were there, the, uh, the, uh, the fire pit, you know, we called it, um, you know, caveman TV because <laughs> that's what's all we did. And, and we grabbed a, a Thrive phone and we called the widow of one of our officers who was living in Fort Bragg. And we told her that we had avenged the death of her husband. Um, and I remember that feeling. I said, you know, there's no way, we would have been successful in that operation several years later in Afghanistan, if not for this kind of calamity that I was involved with um, earlier, uh, uh, several several years prior prior to that. So it's just that idea of of learning from kind of these tragic, you know, mistakes. And and I guess it's the notion that you really can't succeed um, without having gone through this. It's that's a hard concept to grasp. Uh, but again, if you're in if you're in our world, I don't care if you're in special operations, if you're a cop, if you're an ER doctor, an ER nurse. Um, there are a lot of bad things that are going to happen. And so it's, it's how you learn from that. That's actually going to define you. And so that's, that's why this principle to me is, uh, is really important. And it seems to, um, uh, you know, it, it resonates with a lot of people too, because if I go talk, you know, I do a lot of work with the Philly police department. So I go to, you know, Philadelphia has gone through, is going through extraordinary 
bouts of, of violence, of gun violence. There were, you know, riots on the streets. The police were attacked several years ago. Um, you know, the, uh, and so, you know, you don't talk to any cops um, who don't know about adversity. Yeah, and I think it's it's easy to allow adversity to take us down. Right. And I think that one of the characteristics of good leaders is not only capturing lessons learned from failure, but using failure as a pivot point to allow us to move past and to move up from here, right? Like it's, it's, I, I tell the story of when I was learning to drive race cars, I had this great morning where I had, you know, went out with my coach. I didn't spin the car once. I'm feeling fantastic. You know, we sit down to debrief at lunch. He's like, what do you think? I said, freaking awesome, man. I had no problems. Didn't spin a car. He goes, that's because you're slow. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he's wow. like, you're yeah. in control because you're slow. By definition, right. you should be marginally out of control the whole time. So if you want to be fast, you got to let go and realize that you're going to make mistakes, then learn from those yeah. mistakes. And I think it's true, it's certainly in, in running a business and, and certainly, you know, in your prior line of work, it, it you, you know, mistakes are unavoidable. Um, it's, it's what you do with the mistakes. I think that is the, the key question. Absolutely. I, I would even go further and say that's, that's what's going to define you. Um, as a leader, as a, as a person, as a human, um, is how you overcome uh, adversity. It's common. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but you know, and, and especially when I especially when I talk to kind of the young, you know, college athletes too, a lot of them who've had you know these charmed lives. I said, you know, something bad's going to happen. I hate you know it, whether it's your you know so you know hopefully it's just athletics, but maybe your personal life. Um, when I talk to businesses, same thing. I, I remember I was talking to a healthcare um, about professional watching you know and he, he actually had read the book um he was the ceo of a healthcare company and he he said he goes you know you know i you know this this actually these principles work because businesses go under so what do you do then do you just kind of kind of you know turtle up in the in, in the fetal position and cry about it no and even even i think about even you know my son who's a college baseball player he's had two surgeries on his shoulder and that sucks and he's, he's missed and plus with with covid he, i mean that's three years of the last four or five years of playing baseball but i say to him all right, you know, I'll sit here, you know, can shed a tear for about five minutes. And then what are you going to do about it right now? This is, you know, you, you have the option, you know, quit or, or get back at it. You got a lot of PT, you got to rehab to do. You love baseball, keep playing, but you know, you can't know. And no one, by the way, no one's feeling the other thing too, is it's also what I, what I try to teach people is no one feels sorry for you. Yeah. <laughs> no one cares. Yeah, it's true. So you can sit there, their tears, cry those crocodiles, but you know, but, or, or pick yourself up because nobody feels sorry for you. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, sometimes it's a little tough love that helps. Yeah, it's a very valid point. Um, you also in the book talk about, which, which I never really did heard it described this way, but, but I love the example that you gave, which is the process monkey. Yeah. And, and the importance of, of understanding and applying process where, where applicable. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So, you know, that, that word of course is like, you know, you, you, someone says the word process, everyone freaks out. So, oh my God, you're not letting me be creative. You know, I, I can't. We can't brainstorm. Say no, none of that. The notion is when the shit hits the fan, and again, you lose situational awareness. When everything is kind of cloudy around you, or you're you're in that gray, are there two or three things? This is the process that you can fall back on that you know are foundational to what you do. And so that's kind of the notion. And um, and to me, that's you know, it, it's it's the idea of you know, there are some things where you can't take short, you know, some some things you can't take shortcuts. Um, you know, and, and so I think about in my old world, you know, it was something we, we did was called a surveillance detection route. If you're going to meet an asset, an agent, a Russian, you know, some, a, a Russian intelligence officer, um, an Iranian, uh, you know, nuclear official who's spying for us, we have to do something called a surveillance detection route. 
That means, and, and you know, most of your audience is going to understand this. Those who don't, that means, you know, obviously I'm not driving to a meeting, a clandestine meeting site. It means I have to, you know, drive around for maybe several hours. I have to get into disguise, get dumped out of the back of a car. But there's a process of ensuring that nobody is following me. We call it getting in the black. So we're, we're free of surveillance. Um, that's just foundational because at the end of the day, my, you know, who, you know, my, I, I am kind of morally and ethically beholden to taking care of that agent. I cannot let them get killed. And so like the interesting thing about this, um, a surveillance detection route is you do it on your own. No one's there with you. So, so I have timing stops along the way, timing hacks. So I'm doing things to make sure no one's following me, but you know what, if I'm late for the meeting, I could cut corners. Nobody would know, uh, except of course, if the asset gets killed and I, I drag surveillance with me. And so, you know, I, I tell the story about a time when I was in North Africa. Um, uh, it's funny. So yeah, like <laughs> your, your audience, it's a, a hint and, and, you know, the agency is pretty strict. They said, well, you can't tell anyone in your talks where you served. So then I put a picture up of the pyramids. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to have gotten by the, the censors. Um, and so, but I, but you know, so I was, I was going to a, an agent meeting, uh, you know, uh, CIA headquarters, state department. I think it was, it was a penetration of, I can't even remember which government, which is good. I'm getting so old. I can't even accidentally spill secrets. Um, but we're getting the talking points for where, which that, that country's foreign minister was going to talk to, our secretary of state. So CIA headquarters wanted it. DC wanted it. You know, state department wanted it really badly. And I go and I get caught in what I get caught in traffic in this, in this North African country where there's a lot of pyramids. And so, um, and that's totally normal, but, and I'm missing the timing hacks. So, and so I have to do something I call it. That's called aborting the meeting. I, I can't, I could not go to the meeting. I could not safely meet the asset. I come back to the station chief. He's like, you know, Hey man, they're, they're, they're going crazy back in DC. Start writing. I hope you got some good shit. And I was like, couldn't make the meeting. I said, I got, I got jammed up in traffic, you know, it's on me, you know, I, I, you know, maybe I didn't case the site. Right. Um, but, uh, but I couldn't make the meeting. We have a fallback. I'll meet him tomorrow night or it was the night after or whatever. And, you know, the station chief did the right thing and he, and he said, okay, got it. And I didn't go. And so that's the idea of having these kind of key processes. Um, uh, you know, I was joke around that, you know, espionage is what it's the second oldest profession. And then I always ask someone what's yeah, the oldest. Yeah. I think we all know profession. what the oldest one is. Yeah. Uh, but so, but, but think about, you know, so, so when I, when I sit around, I, you know, I, I go to a, uh, a JSOC unit, you know, uh, a, a special operations unit and I'll say, you know, if it's, a, if it's from, you know, our, our friends down in Coronado or Virginia breach, I'll say, you know, what are the two things you guys got to do? And I'll say, we got to shoot and swim. Got it. So, you know, it's just, it's just, so it's, it's intuitive, but it's the idea of when I then go talk to, uh, you know, other kinds of, uh, of, of creeps. Um, when the crack hits the fan, what are the two or three things you and your team have to be able to do? And to me, that's been really effective. And, and so, uh, um, and then, then process ends up not being a bad word. You know, yeah. it, it's something that you can fall back on. Yeah. Um, it, it, uh, it's, it's interesting because I interviewed Bob Koontz, who's a nuclear submarine commander. And it, one of the things Bob talked about was how reliant they are on process and then how question, you know, they, they teach you to absolutely follow the process to the letter of the law and then question everything that happens, including the process. And, it. and it's, it's, it, you know, initially you're like, oh, okay, so just ignore the process. No, you have to follow the process. Or you're going to kill everybody on board. And, and so it, it is this, this reliance on structure. It has to be there. It does. Um, and so, so let me, let me, let me tell you. So, so with that, cause you, you, you know, to question the process, that's perfect because after this incident I'm, ta I'm talking about, so we sat around the station and we're like, all right, we're getting killed by traffic in this country. Like we can't make our timing hacks. We're missing agent meetings. And someone said, why don't we get a bicycle or a motorcycle? We can weave our way around traffic. And everyone's like, holy crap. That was it. Great little brainstorming. 
the process is still intact. It's sacrosanct. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna make sure that we are not surveillance. We're not taking surveillance to an agent meeting, um, uh, but we're getting out of a damn vehicle and we're taking it. And so then, of course, all the case officers were excited because, like, hey man, the U.S. government's gonna buy us a motorcycle. <laughs> They're gonna buy you a <laughs> this, moped. This is hot shit. I it's love not gonna it. be or that cool. You're gonna yeah, moped. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's CIA. You'll get a moped. It'll be an ugly That's one true. too. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I, I think yeah. it's. Uh, you know, it's easy in those circumstances, and you gave the perfect example. If you're going to miss your meeting, you know that that's not ideal. You you want to fix, so you're by yourself. Like, you know, if you don't have a process and you're not disciplined to the process, that's where you're like, ah, you know, let's cut a corner. And, right. uh, you know, in, in, in the business world, cutting a corner might mean that your tax return doesn't get filed, you know, on time or something is late or an order is late. In your world, it literally was somebody gets shot in the back of the head in an alley and, you just, nobody ever knows what happened to him. And, and John, one thing that that all of this is incumbent on 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 being very true to the idea of onyx uh, of honesty and ethics and integrity. And so, you know, again, because so much of it had to do with us as CI officer operating alone. And, and and you know, so when you know when you walk into CI headquarters, you, you walk in if you, if anyone's been there on the right is the is the is the memorial wall which has the stars on there. A lot of my friends are on there, and that's a that's a sacred place. Um, and I remember every day walking in, just really being humbled by that. Uh, but on the left, it's really interesting. There's a, a line from the Bible, and, and the, it's it, it's an etched in stone as well in marble, and it's, it says, "And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free." And that's again, that's the idea of of staying, you know, so true to the idea of, of honesty and integrity and ethics. And I say this as a CI officer, and everyone's like, "Merck's full of crap." CI lying, cheat, and steal. And I'm like, "Yeah, against foreigners, <laughs> not against Americans." <laughs> And when it, when it comes to these processes, again, it's the idea of, hey, I'm I'm going to an agent meeting. If I if I you know cut corners on this SDR, no one will know, but I can't. Yeah, it, it's interesting because you yeah you certainly lived in a world that uh, the truth was a relative thing in a lot of cases. But but it strikes me that having a core of integrity among the people you're working with is thus even more important. Hundred percent, and you know, the, the, it, there's there's two parts of that. There's integrity and honesty with your colleagues, um, which is critically important. But also, it, it's the notion what I said before, and 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 this is the the most fun I have in talking to audiences is is our relationship with our assets, our agents. Um, again, this is the you know a Russian, a Chinese, an Iranian, um, uh, you know, a, a penetration of Hamas. Um, these are foreigners who are spying for us. Um, but we actually have a moral obligation obligation to keep them safe, um, to keep them secure. And, and I, I tell a story in the book as I was training. Uh, it was it was a, a member of an Arab government. He was going back into his country. I was training him on some really sophisticated communication techniques on the streets of Europe. And and we're going to go back in. I was going to be his handler. We're going back into a, a, a really high counterintelligence um, uh, threat uh, uh, state. And he took me aside one time and he said, hey, I just want to talk to you about something, Mark. He goes, training's going great. I have confidence in you. And he said, he goes, you know, but, but you know, you might think about me every once in a while. You know, we're going to meet, our meeting cycle is once a month. That's how, that's how dangerous counter, this counterintelligence environment was. So he said, you're going to think about me before the meeting, after. So maybe a couple of times a month. But he said, I'm going to think about you every single day because if you make one mistake, you know, I'm going to get killed. My family, my tribe is going to get killed. So he said, you have to be perfect. And so I, I always thought of that, and I try to teach that to officers who, who work for me, is that, you know, we have a not only a moral obligation, of course, we, you know, you, you take your, your oath uh, going into the agency. I did so on January 3rd, 1993 to the Constitution. 
Um, and then you have your, you know, your, the, the feelings you have, your kind of your, your oath to your fellow officers. But we also had a real obligation to the agents, these people who agreed to spy for the United States. And again, that's that idea of honesty and, and integrity. It goes back to the process monkey. I got to run that SDR properly because I can't let that agent who has really put his life in my hands, I can't let him down or her down. Yeah. Well, one of the other concepts you talk about is the glue guy. Um, talk to me about the glue guy. Yeah, I love this. This is this is you know the notion of everyone matters. Um, it's the power of contribution, and and you know in my leadership journey, and I screwed this up so much. And so you know, so case officers are the fighter pilots in kind of the intelligence world, and so um, or or the door kickers. You know, they're they're the ones who are going in the front door, and so you know our job is to handle you know spot assess, um, uh, develop, recruit, and handle these agents. Uh, but there's so many other people behind the scenes at CIA that in the beginning I didn't pay attention to, but in the end you realize that everybody does matter in a CI station, whether it's a case officer, an analyst, a logistics officer, a support officer, everybody actually is of equal value. Um, and that's, that's, that, that's the notion of the, of the glue guy and, and the glue gal. I, I always think of a story. I was, again, this goes back to Afghanistan, um, where I was, uh, chief of, of, of skin base, a paramilitary base in Pactika province. And our job was, was, was pure. That was the best job I ever had at the agency. You know, it was, it was a fine fixed finish. Uh, mission on a daily basis. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't building wells. I wasn't sitting across from village elders in Afghanistan, you know, some guy picking his toes, sorry, but you know, I, I you know, and I, I wasn't doing any cultural <laughs> stuff. This was purely a mission where we, it was designed for us to put bad guys, Taliban and Al Qaeda on the X and kill them. Um, calling in airstrikes with our military partners to kill them. And so, um, uh, uh, and so, and we did it really well and we were kind of these, you know, some, you know, uh, uh, uh got a lot of attention from it. Um, officers were really proud, but then something happened one day that again, taught me this blue guy, blue gal concept. And it was, you know, I got a call on the net, uh, the radio net that a, a young Af Afghan boy was walking outside the base and it, he stepped on an old landmine from the Soviet times and blew his leg off and he's bleeding out. Two of my case officers, each of them had kind of uh, a different kind of medical training. One was a former medic in special forces and the other was a former, uh, uh nurse at a, at a, uh, probably a more dangerous job at a, at a, a, an emergency room in Baltimore. Oof. So I had, you know, huge kind of uh, experience with trauma medicine. And they run out there and they're working on this kid. And, and the, the kid's family from the village comes by. I get on the radio and I'm trying to call in a medevac. Um, you're calling a nine line to get a U.S. military helicopter coming in. Well, it's a little weird. You know, it's not, it's certainly not an American. It's not a CIA officer. It's not U.S. military. It's not even our, you know, our Afghan indigenous forces. This is a local kid. I'm pleading with the with the, the you know a base a couple hundred miles away or wherever it was, um, where they had a, a medical facility to send a send a helo, and they finally did. Um, uh, and as our guys, our, our two officers are working, they're covered in blood. They're working on this kid. They put him on the helicopter. Realize we're gonna he's gonna survive. Get the family on, takes off. And they, the kid lives after this. And I remember again sitting around the fire pit, caveman TV once again. We're sitting around the fire pit that night. You know, there's no cable on this. There's I'm not writing this up. We didn't remove from the battlefield a high-value target who was, you know, who was going to still was, you know, planning to, to kill my friends and colleagues, you know, planning attacks in the U.S. military, planning attacks in the homeland, all the things that the base was celebrated for doing. We just saved a young Afghan kid because of two uh, uh, members of our team um, who did something really kind of unsung and behind the scenes. And that's that notion, again, of the glue guy, that everybody really matters. And, and I really took that to heart. And then you know, later on. So, so what does this mean really kind of in someone's leadership journey? Well, you know, I remember giving this again, I, I've given so many kind of crazy talks on this. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was, uh, 
some some school administrators in Fairfax County. So what they bring in a CIA former CIA guy to give a leadership talk. Pretty funny. But but this was actually spot on. So I was sitting around with them and I said, all right, so you know, what matters in your school in, in you know, in the district, Fairfax County, it's a huge school system. Um, you know, who are your blue guys and blue gals? Well, it's easy for them. They said the IT personnel. So think about that. Computer, you can't school can't run, computers don't get turned on. Um, and then, you know, you can kind of extrapolate how this could go for any unit. And so it's just, so that's the idea of, you know, everybody matters, celebrate everybody in their, you know, celebrate successes with everyone. Um, and in your planning sessions, you know, uh, uh, make sure they're all involved. I remember one of the last jobs I had in the field, I was the action, acting station chief at 400 person station. It's a huge station for CIA. In the past, my morning meeting would be all case officers, tip of the spear guys and gals at the end of my career. You know, no, it was the chief of finance. Why is that? You can't run CI operations without money. It's the chief of logistics, the chief of support, chief of security. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, so I, I, every, the entire team is there. Um, and that's kind of the message on, on, the, on the notion of the glue guy and the glue gal. And if, if you're a sports fan, you hear about this all the time. Um, you know, these are the, these are the kind of the unsung heroes uh, on a baseball team or a football team. It's the backup catcher. You know, um, one of there's where I live in Vienna, Virginia, we just had actually, you're out in, you're out in California now. Uh, last year, uh, our top pitcher, six foot eight guy, six nine, kid named Bryce Eldridge, got drafted in the first round by the San Francisco Giants. You know he's going to be playing pro by you. Throws ninety seven miles an hour. And when I went and talked to the team, um, I asked them, you know, I asked the team, who are the glue guys? Well, there was a a third string catcher who caught every one of his bullpens, never saw the field the entire varsity year. And Bryce gets up and he says, "That's our glue guy. That's my glue guy. I'm all state. I just, he, he, by the way, he just got a four million dollar signing bonus." Maybe you should have given some of that money to that 17-year-old kid who's catching for him. But third-string catcher matters to that team just as much as anyone else. Yeah, which which I think then ties hand-in-hand hand with another concept you talked about, which is being a people developer, right? If you recognize the value throughout the organization of people and the value that everybody adds, you then also recognize that developing people is is really what leadership is about. I, I, I agree completely. And, you know, I, I kind of think, think, or, or I always ask people when I do these talks, how do you want to re be remembered? Simple as that. You know, what's your legacy? And, you know, all of us in my old world have what in our basement and John, you're invited to come over. We'll have a scotch. You can see the, I love me wall. We all got them. <laughs> you know, so I got plaques. I got pictures with Kings and Queens, all sorts of fancy medals. I mean, I had a, you know, again, a career with a lot of failure, but with, with some significant success too. Um, but nobody gives a shit about that. Nobody cares. Yeah. So what do they care about? And, and, you know, my last job, I had 2000 officers working for me, but they care about how I, how I developed them as leaders. They care about how I treated them. And so, you know, it, it's, it's not operations I'll be remembered for. It's how I was developing my personal, it's what I call passing the torch. And, you know, there was a, what I used to do in, in Afghanistan, I did it in Iraq and some other places, you know, so let's say I was in charge of a unit. Um, and I had to leave for a couple of days. Maybe I had to fly to Kabul to see the head shed or something. And so I, you know, I, what I would do is it was, and I, if I had five or six people, you know, um, and they might've been, you know, leaders on their own, uh, in, in the unit, but I would say, Hey, you're in charge of the base right now for the next 48 hours. And I would make sure in, in the time frame over, over a couple of months, I would allow each of them to have that kind of leadership experience with 48 hours running a paramilitary base. The boss is gone. Um, but, I, but, uh, you know, but, but this is it, this is their, this is their training program. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a real live training program. I remember jumping on a helo one time and one of the officers, um, was looking at me and he said, you know, Hey boss, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll hold down, hold down the fort when you're gone. And, and this is, I'm not, what I'm going to say now is I'm not advocating. I grabbed him by his shirt and got in his face. You can't do that anymore. Um, 
but I grabbed her by her shirt and I said, what are you talking about? I said, you know, no, uh, in much more, ex you know, explicit language. I said, you make every decision here. You know, if we're taking incoming, you return fire. If there's a, if there's a big agent meeting, I don't know about you guys go through with it. I said, we'll go over your decision-making when we get back, you know, as, as kind of a teaching point, but Hey, this base is yours. And I tell this story because when I, you know, uh, any kind of, he had these kind of bugged out eyes and, 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 and they did, they all did fine. Um, but when I, when my book came out and I, we did a little book event in Vienna at a, at a you know, uh, one of these great indie bookstores. Um, and this case officer now, who now is a station chief, multiple state time station chief overseas came and he actually, I didn't, I didn't even talk to him that day. He talked to my son and he said, Hey, your dad was the best boss I ever had. And my son said, why? Curious because I'm his dad. So he really can't yeah. think of anything I good. Yeah, I do. exactly. Um, yeah. Cause you're his dad. And, uh, so you're and, an and, idiot. Yeah. 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 And, and, and he told this story. He said, because, because your dad gave me these opportunities, these, you know, to, to develop. And so, yeah, I just, I kind of, I, I love that stuff. You know, you, you, you have to, you have to have that note. And by the way, so I was so proud of that. So, you know, screw all my medals and all the crap I have in my basement. Like, holy cow, there's a guy who's a current station chief who's actually thinking back to a time, you know, a decade ago where I helped him out and helped him to become a leader. And that was so gratifying to me. And so it's just the idea of as a leader, your job is to pass the torch. Yeah. There, you know, there's the next generation out there and how you develop, uh, and, and, you know, people, that's how you're going to be remembered, uh, not about your individual exploits. And, um, you know, I, I, this is out of, out of all these, all these concepts, I believe in this so strongly because uh, it really matters. No, I think you're. I think you're spot on. It uh, it is it is easy to want to be the leader and to be in charge, and it takes you a long time to realize that the best thing you can do as leader is is diversify power and and just get out of the way. That's right. Which is it's it's kind of counterintuitive though, isn't it? What mean you learn that over time too. Like you know the. When when I was again it, uh, my first my first leadership job in two thousand and three, good lord, um, I was a mess. I was a disaster. I thought I had to do everything myself. I thought I was smarter than everybody else. My last leadership job in two thousand and what you know seventeen to nineteen, where I had two thousand people working for me, it was all about you know uh, uh, you know delegating down and trusting your subordinates. And I mean you know there's and 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 realizing that you know. It's good if most of the people around you are smarter than you. Um, you know, your ego is gone at that point because it has to be. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, again, that's part of the leadership journey. Uh, and and I, you know, you, and it's oh, by the way, this is okay. Like one of the, one of the things that I think, you know, people who who, who do have a lot of you know, a lot of folks under their command or are managing a first time leader is to understand that that first time leader is going to go through some struggles, um, and just and kind of walking, you know, uh, him or through her through that is really important. Yeah, no, I think you're. I think you're spot on. I, one of my favorite Steve Jobs quotes is, "We don't hire smart people so we can tell them what to do. We hire smart people so they'll tell us what to do." Right, right, hundred percent. So, market. Where can people find you and your work? I mean, obviously, the you know everybody needs to read the book, which is a fantastic book. But uh, what's the best way for people to follow you? Sure. So, I, the, the the book kind of uh, turned into it's it's not an active website, but it's a website markpanrapolis.com. Pretty easy. Um, in which, uh, in which, uh, you know, some of my kind of the opportunities for speaking <laughs> engagements, um, uh, uh, is there. And, and, you know, again, as I do talks on leadership, I'll do talks on geopolitics. I, I, I've done some great stuff. Again, I'm a huge baseball fan. So, uh, the world of, uh, of athletics is, is really important to me. I, what, and so, so anyway, I can, I can get booked for speaking engagements anytime. Um, I, uh, I, uh, have a, <laughs> I, I regret to even say this, but I'm on Twitter um, at, at M polymer. 
and this is just a kind of this is this is me not unhinged is the wrong word, but unfiltered is better. Or as my friends say, it's you're a dart with no feather <laughs> in the back. And so, you know, I'll talk about what I ate that day. You know, my, my lifting routine was I, I'm an idiot. So I put up, you know, I benched 350 the other day. I'm 54 years old. I was pretty proud of it. Um, and so I, you know, I, I videotaped myself doing that, which I got mocked mercilessly for. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Rightfully so. Um, uh, and then, you know, and I, I talk a lot about, you know, kind of current events too, but it's, um, the, one of the things about me that's interesting is, is that I, uh, uh, I'm kind of a classic centrist in terms of my politics. And so I, no, I, I and, and so I, everyone's always mad at me for something. Um, the right's pissed at me half the time. The left is pissed at me half the time. And I don't care. That's about right. That's probably, that's probably yeah. the best place yeah. where to be. Um, uh, and, and, you know, one other, one other, uh, point of this too, is that, you know, I, I am, you know, certainly, so again, markpalinopolis.com, but people write me emails all the time. I spent a ton of time going around to colleges talking about the intelligence community. You talk about public service, you know, hey, you know, you don't have to join the CIA, join the FBI, go become a cop, a firefighter, anything, you know, serve something greater than yourself, and that's your country. Um, but but I am accessible, and I, I probably have four or five uh, uh, young professionals slash college students throughout the week who I'm kind of mentoring and talking to um, about jumping into that realm of, of national security. And so... Uh, as my wife says, you are the world's worst businessman um, because I just seem to do everything for free. Yeah, yeah. Believe, <laughs> and believe just me. answer a lot of questions. Yeah, as a business guy, <laughs> the stuff that I really love is the stuff that I don't get paid for. Yep. No, I mean, I, I go back and forth to the Philly Police Department. I do a lot of work with them, and, and that's all. Could just you know, uh, uh, that, that is that's you know, without any compensation, I don't care. But because that's again, it's the law enforcement to me is very much like CIA. It's an indispensable institution. Um, that often is not, you know, uh, certainly is not appreciated. You don't join these organizations. You don't become a CIA officer or air cop um, or an FBI agent or, or whoever for, you know, for a pat in the head. Um, you got to have that kind of, you know, inner strength to, to do a really tough job. And so I love, love going to see um, the, the Philly Police Department. It's weird because I'm from New Jersey. I mean, I, geez, I grew up a New York Giants fan. I spent all these time with these Eagles fans. Uh, but it's a. Uh, see, the tribes I, can the, get along. <laughs> they can they can no but it, 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 this is again super rewarding i was my i took my son to a game and um at citizens park in, in in philly we're walking around and and some there's a couple of guys and their families came up to me and said hey you're that cia guy who helps us and i said who are you he said we're cops from philly you know we've heard your talks that was awesome yeah that's fantastic so we finish every episode of battle proven <laughs> leadership with what i call the three questions so these are short answer off the top of your head <laughs> Uh, you know, what do you think? How do you feel? Kind of questions. Um, and the goal of this is to kind of leave people with with thinking about how to be a better leader. So um, first question I'd like to ask you is what's your most important habit? Sleep. I, I mean, that seriously, you know, take care of yourself. It's, uh, maybe sleeping and, and working out lifting. hundred um, percent. You got, you know, you're never going to be the best uh, leader, best person best man or woman you can be uh, if you're not taking care of yourself and, and sleep and it's proven um, john you know this i'm sure is that um uh, uh sleep is absolutely essential for high performance athletes um, operators cops law enforcement anyone everybody i agree completely i am maniacal about my sleep yep um number two what's the most important thing for building an effective team listening um a great boss of mine used to say that uh you know, uh, if you're talking, you ain't listening. Um, it's the idea of just to listen. Uh, you know, and, and again, as, as, as a leader, um, especially junior leaders, you're always talking, you're always giving your opinion, more senior leaders, more seasoned ones. Uh, 
take input, listen, listen to your people. What do you think the one thing every leader, every leader needs to know is? Drop your ego and surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. And again, that's tough. That, that, that's, that's counterintuitive at the beginning when you're that hotshot. Um, once, you, once you get it, you realize surround yourself with people who are better than you. Then the team takes off. I love that. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down with me. And uh, we'll put all the information on the, in the show notes so people can get in touch with you. And, you know, again, man, thank you for uh, living in the shadows for the majority of your adult life taking care of us. Thanks, John. It was great. Appreciate it.